Thank you so much, worship team, especially the choir. We're going to miss you this summer. Just so appreciate your heart to lead us in worship and praise. And it is definitely necessary for us to sing. I appreciated the new song about You Have Made Me Glad. Uh, and even though you say that about 20 times during that song, sometimes I need to say something 20 times before I actually start to think about it and really believe that it's true. Sometimes you come in, you start singing, and you're just kind of going through the motions, and you're not really think, th thinking about the words. But then even as we just sang that line, you have made me glad, you have made me glad, you know, my heart starts to soften and just remember that you have made me glad that you've forgiven my sins, that you don't treat me the way that I deserve, that I have so many blessings in my life, and we don't want to be distracted by, you know, the few hard things in our lives and lose sight of the fact that he has made us glad in so many ways. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're continuing in our series, Called Out. One of our favorite family movies to watch uh, altogether is Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, and the original one, not like the weird Johnny Depp one that they did uh, later on, but the original Charlie and the Chocolate Factory with Gene Wilder. Uh, it's a wonderful movie. We have lines that we just share even around the house, you know, from time to time. The snozberries taste like snozberries. Uh, that's one of our favorite lines. But if you think about that movie, the premise of the movie is that if you find a golden ticket you're going to gain access to Willy Wonka and his chocolate factory, right? And the only way that you're going to be able to get in is if you have that golden ticket. You know, and in some ways, you know, the Holy Spirit is our golden ticket to be able to get into the wisdom and thoughts of God. Not only to get into heaven, but actually to know God, to know how he thinks, what he thinks. The Holy Spirit is our ticket to get there. But if you think about that movie, there was something else that Charlie needed if he was going to go visit the chocolate factory. And it's actually more fundamental than the golden ticket. It's that Willy Wonka had to want to share the chocolate factory with him. The reason he even sent out golden tickets is because he was willing to make his chocolate factory known. And he didn't have to. So as we might think, the golden, that this Holy Spirit is our golden ticket to know God. Even more fundamental than that is the fact that God wanted to be known. And if God never made that decision to make himself known, we would never know him. And he would never have sent his son to die on a cross so that he could then send his spirit to give us access to his very thoughts. And so we've been granted access to the very thoughts and depths of God. Not because we deserve it, not because God even had to do it, but because he wanted to share himself with us. Amen. And our access is the greatest blessing that we have. And it should lead us to two things. It should lead us to be incredibly thankful that God would make himself known to us and send his spirit. But it should also make us incredibly humble because we have no access to him. We have no way of knowing him unless he revealed himself to us. And that's exactly what he's done. And that's exactly what Paul is going to talk about in these verses. So let me read uh, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6, where Tim preached last week, all the way down through verse 16. 
says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God. No one except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. Why? So that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person, the person without the Spirit, he doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. But the spiritual person, the person that has the Spirit, he judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Father, this text is just blessing after blessing after blessing. The greatest blessing of them all is that you would want to be made known to your people. We sinned against you. We rebelled. We didn't want anything to do with you, and you didn't have to reveal yourself to us. And beyond that, you didn't have to send your son to save us. And beyond that, you didn't have to then send your spirit so that we could understand the deep things of who you are. And yet you did all those things. Not because we deserved it, but because you're a God who loves to shower love and grace and wisdom on people that don't deserve it. So Lord, we should be the most grateful people of all, and we should also be the most humble people of all. And Lord, I ask that you would do both of those things this morning. As we go through this passage, that you would make us profoundly grateful for the privilege that we have to know your thoughts and to actually have access to them in written form and that you would also make us profoundly humble, that we wouldn't trust our thoughts, that we wouldn't trust the world's thoughts, that we wouldn't trust our feelings, our emotions, our ways of thinking anymore, but we would trust yours. That you would allow us. We have the mind of Christ, it says. It's not that we need to get it. We have it. But Lord, would you help us to walk in light of it? And that our lives would more and more reflect our Savior pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Paul wants to unpack several things here about God's wisdom. And the first thing is this, that access to God's wisdom is only granted through the Spirit. There's no other access to God's wisdom except through His Spirit. 
just to kind of remind us of the context here, Paul's sort of been railing on wisdom, right? He says, you know, we didn't preach with words of wisdom. We weren't trying to use, you know, the world's wisdom. So you might get the impression that Paul's against wisdom. But Paul's not against wisdom. He's against the wisdom of this world. And he says in verse 6, we do have wisdom to share, but it's the wisdom that this world doesn't know. It's a wisdom in verse 9 that he describes as no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And that's actually, that's not a verse about heaven. That's not a verse about the future. That's a verse about what God has revealed through Christ. It's a quote from Isaiah, where Isaiah, the people are thinking, how in the world are a sinful people ever going to be reconciled to God? And he says that God's going to do something that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has ever conceived. He's going to send his son to die in the place of sinners so that a sinful people could be reconciled to God. That's the wisdom that we have. That's the wisdom that God wants to give. And we should understand that this is a tremendous privilege to be given this wisdom. Look at verse 10. These things God has revealed to us. The to us there is actually the first words of the sentence in the original language. To us, God has revealed these things. And who are we? I mean, if you look back at verse 9, it says, oh, we're the ones who love him. We're the ones that were smart enough to love God. Uh, We're the ones that figured out who God is. No, 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 no. Because what did he just say about us just a chapter ago? Who are we? We're the nobodies. We're the weak. We're the foolish. We're the inconsequential. And yet to us, he's revealed these things. To people that didn't deserve it. To people that would never have figured it out. To us, even to us, he's revealed these things. Not on the basis of our worth, but purely on the basis of his love. He's made known these things to us. You think about the parable of the sower when Jesus explains it to the disciples. He says, To you, it has been granted to know the secrets of the kingdom, but to them it's not been given. To us, it was given to know these things. Or in John 15, 15, Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. We are friends of God. Not because we were friendly, but because he was a friend to us. We can now be friends to him. And he tells us everything. He reveals himself to us. I mean, do you realize the privilege that that is? To be someone that God would reveal himself to. Really, that is the greatest privilege of our salvation. That we get to know God. The greatest privilege of our salvation is not forgiveness. Or not even heaven. The greatest privilege is we know him. We get to know him. Us. Sinful us, nobody us. We get to know him. That's what Jesus says, right? John 17. This is eternal life. What? That you know the Father and the one whom he has sent. 
Or Paul says it this way, I consider everything in my life as garbage compared to the surpassing value of what? Knowing Christ. That's the greatest privilege. Psalm 27, the psalmist says, One thing I ask, one thing I seek, that I might dwell in your courts to what? To behold your beauty. To meditate on you in your temple. That's salvation. That's what we get in salvation. We get God. That's what makes the good news good. To you, God has revealed these things. I mean, can you believe that? To you. Think about how you used to live. Think about that you held your fist up against God. And to you, he revealed these things. Should make us grateful. Now, how does he reveal it to us in verse 10? Through the Spirit. The only way that we get to know God is through his Spirit. And that's really what the rest of these verses are going to unpack. How is it that we can know God through his Spirit? Well, first, the Spirit has exclusive access to God. Look at the rest of verse 10. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now, when we hear that phrase, the Spirit searches everything, uh, we shouldn't think about like how we search for something, right? Why do we search for something? Because we don't know it or we don't have it. And so you might get the impression from that phrase that somehow the Spirit is finding out things about the depths of God. But that's not what's happening, right? It means that the Spirit is able to search all throughout the depths of everything and God. Why? Because he is God. The Spirit's not finding out anything. The Spirit knows everything. He has unhindered access to everything, even the depths of God. Why? Because he is God. That's what Paul's saying. So the only way we're going to know God is through his Spirit making him known. So what is the Spirit search? What kind of waters does the Spirit swim in at the end of verse 10? Even the depths of God. Those would be some deep waters to swim in. I mean, how would you describe the depths of God? Let's actually hold that thought. We'll circle back to it. But before we go into that, Paul wants to give an illustration in verse 11. He wants to give a human illustration of kind of the relationship between, you know, the Spirit being able to bring forth knowledge from a person. Verse 11, he says, For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? Right? So a human example. Who knows a person's thoughts? That person, right? The Spirit of that person that's in them. Right? So, again, wives, contrary to popular belief, husbands do not know what you're thinking unless you choose to reveal yourself uh, to them in words, right? I don't know what you're thinking. You don't really know what I'm thinking. Those are thoughts that only our spirit knows. And he says it's the same with God. Who knows the thoughts of God? Do we? No, the spirit does. The spirit knows the thoughts of God. The spirit exclusively knows the thoughts of God. Look at the end of verse 11. No one comprehends the thoughts of God. No one. No one. Except 
the Spirit of God. We are completely dependent on God's Spirit for access to God's wisdom. We can't figure it out on our own. We can't figure it out by looking at the world around us. There's no way of just kind of rationally studying things out to get to God's wisdom. God has exclusive rights to his wisdom, and if we want it, the only way we're going to get it is if he gives it through the Spirit. That's what he says in verse 12. He says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. So Paul is setting up this contrast between the spirit of the world and the spirit from God. So he's saying that we're in one bubble. We're in the spirit of the world, right? As God's creation, we're a part of creation. We can't not be a part of creation. But God is completely different and distinct from his creation. We exist in creation. He exists outside of creation. And Paul's saying there's nothing in creation that's going to help us to understand who God is because he's completely separate he's completely different he's completely distinct which means if we want God's wisdom where is it not found it's not found in here it's not found in here and it's not found by looking at everything that's around us it's outside of us right he says we have not received the spirit of the world but we've received the Spirit, and then what's this little word he uses? Who is from God. In order to understand God, we need something outside of ourselves. We need his Spirit. His Spirit comes from him to give us access to him. We would not know anything about God unless God revealed it to us through his Spirit. Now you might wonder, like, well, why am I, you know, harping on this? Well, because it's the very opposite of how we think, oftentimes. We think, real wisdom, what do I do? I search within, right? Look deep inside. So much of our culture, look within. If you want to find what's true, where do you find it? Inside, in your heart. Follow your heart, right? Like, Ariel, don't listen to your dad. Who cares? Go after Prince Eric. It doesn't matter what anyone says. Follow your heart, and that's how we think. We think the truth is in here, or I can look at the world, and the truth is out there. It's in the world. I can find it. I'll go to the experts. I'll go to the doctors. I'll go to the philosophers. I'll go to the, the people that know everything, and they'll tell me what the truth is. And Paul says, no. That's not where truth is. It's not in here. It's not in the world. It's only in God. And he, the only way you're going to know it is if he makes it known to you. So everything you need to know about God, the thoughts of God, the deep things of God, the mysteries and secrets of God, they're revealed from God to us by the Spirit. They're not discoverable from within. One theologian says that this verse, this concept, is the great charter of Christian theologians. If you want to know God, if you want to know the truth, if you want to know wisdom, this is where it starts. That it's not here, and it's not here. It's not in this world. It's only in God, and the only way I'm going to know it is if he reveals it to us. And praise God, that's exactly what he's done through the scripture. We have his knowledge. 
right? There was no knowing Willy Wonka apart from him revealing himself to the people that he chose, right? You couldn't know him unless he invited you in. And we can't know God unless he invites us in through his son and through his spirit. I mean, God has revealed himself in many, in some different ways, right? He's revealed himself in creation, right? The verse that says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Or he's revealed himself in man, that we are created in his image. But apart from his word, even the ways that he has revealed himself, we can't interpret correctly. I mean, think again. Could you know Willy Wonka through his chocolate bars? It's like, to a degree you could, right? Like, oh, he's smart enough to make a chocolate bar, right? But you wouldn't know his heart unless he told you. Because you might say, oh, he's, he created this amazing chocolate bar. He must be the kindest, most, you know, compassionate, loving person in the world to give the world the gift of the chocolate bar. But you could just as easily think, he must be some maniacal monster. He's trying to kill us all by getting us addicted to chocolate, and then we're all going to die way earlier than we, than we would have wanted to. Which one's true? Unless you know Willy Wonka, you don't know which one's true. So even if you look at the glory of God, there's things you might think that God could be like, but unless you have this, you can't interpret it correctly. It'd be like a funhouse mirror. You're looking at it, and you're thinking, boy, I'm really slim and tall. It's like, actually, not really. That's what the mirror's doing for you. Or it's like, wow, I never knew I was so short. It's like, you're not short. You're actually tall, but you're looking at this mirror, and you're seeing a distorted image. What do we need? We need a true mirror so we can see things for how they truly are. And that's what God's given us in his word. But again, that's hard for us because it's the opposite of how we think. We trust ourselves. We trust our experience. We trust our thoughts and our feelings. They feel more real to us than words on a page. So we think we can know God by looking within or looking around us. But Paul says no. This is more real than what you think. This is more real than what you feel. This is more real than your experience. And that's important because we live in a world that says all absolute truth is going to be in here. That you're going to follow your heart and you're going to find the truth. And that is a lie. Truth isn't here. Truth is out there in God. And this is imminently practical because you might have a friend, a loved one, a son, a daughter come up to you and say, I feel like a man trapped in a woman's body. And they're thinking, this has to be true because it's how I feel. And we get to say, no, this is real. This is true. God created you as a woman, a beautiful woman who is completely distinct and different than a man. And God doesn't make mistakes. And when you put your trust in this, over this, you'll find freedom. If you follow this, you'll go right down to bondage. But if you follow this, you'll find freedom. This is more real than what I feel. This is more real than what I experience. And so follow him. And so what are you going to trust? Your inward self or the depths of God? 
that we have access to through the Spirit. You know, this is the mark of someone whose God is really ready to use. Someone that completely humbles themselves under the Word of God. Rhonda was talking to one of our neighbors. They're moving uh, recently. And she was talking to Francis, was his name. And it was amazing because God has just done a work in this guy's heart. Uh, he says, you know, it's like, I don't want to live for myself anymore. I want to live for Christ. I've been running this rat race. I've been working all these jobs. We've been sort of, you know, passing, my husband and wife have been passing, you know, ships in the night, and we don't get to spend time with our kids, and we realize we don't want to do that anymore. We want to live for Christ. And I said, you could still do that in Vallejo, but okay, you're going to move to Washington. But it was amazing to hear his testimony because God had done something in his heart. And when I really knew that God had done something in his heart, he said this, I was reading the scripture and I was reading about, you know, God indicting the evil and sinful generations. And he said, when I read that, I used to think, oh yeah, all those people out there, all those bad people. But he said, when I read it, I was like, those things are in me. Someone who trembles at the word of God. Somebody that sees that the, out, out there is not the problem, in here is the problem. And I need to submit myself to this. That's someone that God can use. So what is wisdom? Wisdom is not something discovered by looking inside or to the world around you. In fact, it's not discovered at all. Wisdom is a sheer gift of God to be received through his spirit. That's what Paul's saying. And this should lead us to just a profound humility that everything we need is not in us. It's only in him. That's why Paul's sharing it at this point in this letter, right? This is a group of people that they've become proud. They're dividing. I'm better than you. You're not as good as me. Why would you do that? I'm so much better. My thoughts are so much better than your thoughts. My gifts are so much better than your gifts. And Paul's all along the way just trying to humble them. Right? I mean, think back to chapter one. You believed a message that you would never have come up with. Christ on the cross. God saved a people that you would never expect. A bunch of nobodies. God used a means that you would never do. Not eloquence, not worldly wisdom, but just plain preaching of a crucified Christ. And now God is a source of wisdom that you could never access. The only way that you get to access it is through the Spirit. So all along the way, he's trying to humble them. So he's kind of saying, how can you, a group of know-nothing, worldly wisdom-seeking, limited and finite, sinful people, possibly be proud? God's done everything. You've done nothing. You should be humble. You should love each other. And that only comes through the Spirit. So that was first. Access is dependent completely on the Spirit. Second, access to God's wisdom deepens our understanding of his revelation. Look at the end of verse 12, right? So why did God give us the spirit in the middle of verse 12? That we might understand the things freely given us by God. And this is where we return to the question, what are the deep things of God? What are the thoughts of God? In verse 6, he said it was a secret and it was a hidden wisdom. What is that? A lot of us think, well, maybe that's like some sort of Bible code, you know, that, that we're going to be able to rearrange the letters in each verse and it's going to show us, you know, when Christ is coming back or which job I'm supposed to take or the person that I'm supposed to marry. 
That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about sort of this esoteric, you know, weird, mysterious knowledge of God. What he's saying is that God gives his spirit so that we can understand the things he's already revealed. The ministry of the spirit is not about new revelation. The ministry of the spirit is not even about personal life decisions. Like, should I go down this road or that road? Right? The spirit is not like a magic eight ball that we just get to shake it up every time we need to make a decision. It's going to tell us which way to go. No, the spirit is given so that we might understand the things that God has already revealed. And he's revealed the gospel. I mean, think about Paul. He says in Romans eleven thirty three, similar words. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And what's Paul been talking about for 11 chapters? The glories of salvation in Christ. Ephesians 3, 8, Paul says that his ministry is to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. In 3.18, he prays for the Ephesians that wanting them to understand the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Colossians 1, 26 to 29 says that God had mysteries that were hidden in ages past, but they've now been revealed to us. So what are they? Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what are the deep things of God? The deep things of God are the gospel. That he sent his son to pay for your sins. And that the Spirit is given so that you would understand that. And that you would understand that in deeper and deeper and deeper ways. Not that you need new information about God. You just need to meditate on the fact that he sent his son for you. And that will begin to change everything. The Spirit's ministry is also closely related to Christ, as we looked at in those few verses. But look at John chapter 14. I mean, the very words of Jesus when he's talking about sending the Spirit, we've got to look at these. John 14, 25 to 26. Again, what is the Spirit's ministry? John 14, 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and do what? Bring to remembrance all that I have said to you, right? Not new information, but a deeper understanding of what Christ has already done. That's the Spirit's ministry. He says it again. Look, chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, what will he do? He will bear witness about me. Again, not new, not new information that you need, but a deeper understanding of everything that Christ has done for you. One more, 16, verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you things that are to come. What is he going to do in verse 14? He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
The Spirit's ministry in your life is to get you more amazed at what Christ already did for you. That's what he wants to do. That's his main ministry. It's not about, like, kind of mystically guiding you through life. It's about applying what Christ has already done to you. Now, will that be practical? Absolutely, that'll be practical. But think of it this way, right? Summer's coming up. People might be looking for summer jobs. So you might have this question, should I take summer job A or job B? Job A is data entry. I can work from home, pays really well. Job B is I'm a lifeguard at a pool, doesn't pay so well, out in the hot sun. So how do I make this decision? I think some of us think we make this decision by like feelings and, you know, things that happen around us. Right? Like, oh, I was thinking about the data entry job, and a dark cloud went across the sun. And it was the Spirit of God telling me, no, don't go that way. That's not the right job for you. That's magic eight ball, Holy Spirit. That's not what he is. That's not what he does. What does he do? He reminds you of who Jesus is. So, that is practical. Summer job A. If I'm thinking about the gospel, what did Jesus come to do? Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came to die in the place of sinners. Jesus came to welcome people and bring them to God. Summer job A, I'm going to sit in my basement, and I'm going to be on the computer, and I'm not going to interact with anyone. But it pays better. Summer job B, I'm a lifeguard. I actually get to provide tangible help to people when they're in danger, as well as get to know the people in my community and my fellow coworkers that I'll be interacting with. Which job is more in line with the gospel? summer job B. Did the Spirit guide you? Absolutely he did. How did he guide you? By thinking about Jesus. Not by some, you know, a, a crow flew by and that's, the, I shouldn't do that one. It's like, no, that's how he guides you. By reminding you of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. And it is imminently practical. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 13, I think that's what Paul's talking about in verse 13, that it's very practical what the Spirit does in your life. Verse 13, he says, We impart this, right, these things that God has given us, we impart this in words, right, so that's what we have here, in words. They're words not taught by human wisdom. This is not the result of human wisdom. They are taught by the Spirit. Then he says, Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now, that's kind of a weird phrase. Like, what exactly does Paul mean when he says that? I think what he's getting at is the Holy Spirit is going to take truth, and he's going to apply it to people who have the Spirit. So you're thinking about your life. You've got all these different decisions you're making. You're trying to navigate life. What's he going to do? He's going to bring his truth to bear on your life in very practical ways. That's what he's going to do. You can think of it this way, right? The Spirit, he's swimming in the depths of God, right? And periodically, he'll pop up and he'll bring you the catch of the day right from God to you exactly what you needed to hear. And he'll do it through reminding you about Christ. And you'll do that. Sometimes you'll be reading a passage you've read a hundred times and then something will jump out at you and you're like, thank you, God. Thank you, Spirit, for reminding me of this. This happened one time you know, as I was thinking about trials, I was reading in Matthew when, you know, Matthew 26, Jesus is praying, you know, Father, take this cup from me. 
and not my will, but yours be done. And I never saw before that he actually prayed that three times. That Jesus, when he calls us to trust God in the midst of trials, it's not just like, what's wrong with you? Like, just trust him. It's no, even the Son of God had to pray three times and say, not my will, but yours be done. And that's what the Spirit of God does. As you're in his word, as you're looking to the life of Christ, the truths of who Christ is, he'll bring you catch after catch exactly for what you need. That's his ministry. And so we have this amazing truth in these verses that God, the God who created all things, the Almighty, the one who we raised our hands and our voices to worship, the one who saved us, the one who solved the problem of our sin. How can sinful people get to holy God? That God, the one who sent his son to die in our place, who had Christ die on the cross that we would never have come up with, right? No eye is seen, no ear is heard, no mind conceived. That God now makes his wisdom available to us. That is an incredible thought. But the reason that Paul puts it here is because he wants to ask this question. If that's all true, and you praise him for all those things, then why do you trust your own thoughts? Why do you believe what you feel more than what his word says? That's what he's getting at, right? These are people, he's telling them, you have the mind of Christ, but you're not living like it. You're the kind of person who reads things that are clear as day in the word of God, and then you think, yeah, well, I don't really agree with that. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. I know God says that means nothing but trouble, but I know that. I, it'll be fine. Like, why would you do that? If he is the all-wise, all-powerful God, and merciful, and gracious, and knows what's best for you, and he's given you access to his wisdom, why would you despise it by not living like it? You know, why are we so agreeable to our own ways of thinking? Someone offends us, and our immediate thought is, I'm never talking to that person again. And we don't for a moment think, does that line up with what God's wisdom says? Because we, we trust ourselves. We trust our thoughts. And we need to be people that trust his word, even over our thoughts, in our feelings, in our emotions. And that's just what the Spirit wants to do. He wants to reorient all of your thoughts around his Son. Look at verse 14 to 16. This is the last point. Access enables us to think like Christ in all areas of life. Paul starts with the negative example, the natural person, the, spirit, the person that doesn't have the Spirit, in verse 14. This natural person he doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. Right? So it says he doesn't accept them. Right? He doesn't like them. He doesn't want them. This is a will thing. Like, I don't want what God has to say. This is the person without the Spirit. I mean, the person without the Spirit thinks truth is out there and not in here? No way. I'm supposed to forgive people that wrong me? Uh-uh. Love my enemies? I'm a sinner, me? There's nothing good in here? I need something out there? No way. I don't accept that. That's the natural person. Everything I need is right here. 
my heart, my mind, they can't steer me wrong. I'm the best one to evaluate truth. I don't need anything else. Now, why does he think that way in verse 14? Because they are folly to him, right? These things don't make sense to him. They seem foolish to him. But beyond that, there's an even deeper reason. It's that he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So he doesn't want to understand it, right? He doesn't accept it. But even if he did want to accept it, he can't. He's not able to because it takes the Spirit to be able to accept them and to know them. And he doesn't have the Spirit. There's, so there's no way of him ever even knowing what God says is true. You know, I was studying here yesterday, and sometimes when there's no one in the building, I'll sort of pace around, you know, the building, just kind of thinking through things and, and praying. And so I came upstairs, and I was in the lobby, and I heard this bird, and I was like, that bird sounds like it's on the inside, not that it's on the outside of this building. And so sure enough, there was this little bird flapping away, going back and forth, you know, along the ceiling in the lobby. Uh, if you're afraid of birds, I'm sure he's gone. Uh, don't worry, he's not going to come back. Uh, but as I was walking, pacing, I started to think, well, okay, I'm going to try to get this bird out of this building. And so I opened up, you know, all the front doors, and I'm kind of chasing him from one end of the building to the other, out in the lobby, like throwing things at him and all this stuff. And he just keeps going back and forth, back and forth. I even start talking to him. I'm like, hey, I'm trying to help you. Like, out the door. Like, you, that's what you want, and I'm out the door. I'm your friend. I'm not trying to hurt you. But of course, what does he do? He just flies back and forth because he doesn't understand, right? Why doesn't he understand? Because he's a bird, and I'm a person, and we don't have, we can't communicate with each other, right? And the natural person, that's what it's like with God. God is saying, repent. <laughs> Turn from your sin. <laughs> Trust in Christ. That's what you need. But without the Spirit, it's just, the bird is just, is just flying back and forth. I'm doing my own thing. Who are you to tell me? You might be trying to hurt me. I don't trust you. And it's not until God gives us his Spirit that we can understand the things that he's telling us and that we see the wisdom in what he says. And it so radically changes us that, that in verse 15, Paul says the spiritual person, now he's not talking about, you know, like super spiritual subclass of Christians. No, he's saying every person who has the Spirit, every Christian is who he's talking about in verse 15. Every person who has the Spirit judges all things. What does judge mean? Well, judge, it's actually the same word as the last word in verse 14, discerned. So the idea is a person who has the Spirit can look at everything and be able to make good spiritual decisions. Like everything, right? Now, everything related to life and godliness, right? So not like, you know, you're going to be able to fix your car all of a sudden, or you can read a medical chart, right? Step aside, doctor. I have the Holy Spirit. I can discern all things. Uh, no, that's not what he's talking about. But every spiritual decision that you would need to make in your life, you can make it. Why? Because you have the Holy Spirit. You can make intelligent spiritual decisions about all aspects of life. And that, again, that should amaze you. Like, thank the Lord that he gives us his spirit so that anything that comes up in my life, he'll give me the wisdom to know how to act and how to respond. Now, you have to remember, where does it come from? It comes through the spirit, through God's revelation. Not in here, not in here, not in the signs that you see around you, but in here. 
Then he also says in verse 15 that the person who has the Spirit is judged by no one. Now, what does he mean by that? I think all he means, the NIV translates it this way, this way and I think it's helpful. He says that the spiritual person is not subject to merely human judgment. So it means that when this, a person who doesn't have the Spirit looks at someone who does have the Spirit, the person without the Spirit is not going to be able to understand the person with the Spirit. They're not going to be able to figure them out. And that's true, right? I mean, the world does not understand Christians. It's like, wait a minute. The doctor just said you have stage four cancer, and you probably only have three months to live. And I think I, you're more joyful now than I've ever seen you before. The world doesn't understand that. Or you look at some, a situation, and you think, wait a minute, that person hurt you, and you forgave them? How is that possible? Wait a minute, you, you're kind and loving to people that don't love you back? We, we're not subject to the world's judgment. The, the, the world does not understand the things that make us tick because we're different from the world. They can't figure it out. Why? Because verse 16, who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? I mean, the answer to that question is no one. Especially someone that doesn't have the Spirit, they can't understand the mind of the Lord. But to us, he's actually revealed his mind to us to the point where Paul can say at the end of verse 16, we have the mind of Christ. Which is an incredible statement. We have access to the way that Christ thought about life. And that's what the Spirit wants to do, to mold you, to mold your way of thinking, your thoughts, your attitudes, the way that you relate to each other. He wants to mold it after the image of Christ. And this is actually going to take a lot of work. Few of us, when we're saved, understand how profoundly different our whole life needs to be. The ways that we think, the ways that we feel, the way that we react when someone sins against us, the way that we're supposed to love people that don't love us back, none of us really know that the moment we get saved. But over the course of time, the Spirit works in us to change us, to give us the mind of Christ. God's wisdom calls us to reorient all of life around Christ's mindset. One commentator said it this way. He put it negatively and positively. Negatively, he says this means a profound consciousness to emancipate ourselves consciously from the compulsive standards of the world. Like, this is going to take conscious effort to disentangle our way of thinking from the way the world thinks. And it's going to take some work for us to disentangle the way that we used to think from how we should now think. And it's a conscious thing. It's not just going to happen overnight. The Spirit's going to, you know, prick us to where we have to realize, oh, I've been thinking in the wrong way, and I need to untangle that thought. And then positively, it would mean a profound consciousness to conform ourselves consciously to the life of Christ. So just as intentional as it's going to be for us to disentangle ourselves from the world's way of thinking, our own ways of thinking, 
It's going to require just as much effort to put us back in the right way, thinking like Christ. I mean, this is, this is what discipleship is. This is Romans 12. No longer conformed to the patterns of the world, but transformed through the renewing of our minds. And so whose mind do we have at the end of verse 16? The mind of Christ. So our ways of thinking should be like his ways of thinking. So Philippians 2, do nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's our mindset. That's what our mindset should be going through life. We live like Christ. Think about our relationships, how they change. Matthew 5, Jesus says, if your brother, if you know your brother has something against you, what should you do? Go and reconcile with your brother. So he's saying, if you're the offender, you need to go and reconcile to your brother. What does he say in Matthew 18? He says, if your brother sins against you, what should you do? Go and reconcile with your brother. So whether you're offender or offended, the responsibility is the same. If I'm thinking like Christ, I'm not content to let disunity live in the church. I'm going to go. Whether I know someone has something against me or I did something to someone else, I'm going to go to that person and I'm going to reconcile. I'm not going to give cold shoulder. I'm not going to ignore it. I'm not going to pretend it's not there. I'm not going to avoid that person. I'm going to go to that person. That's thinking like Christ. That's the mind of Christ. Peter asked him, well, how many times should I forgive him? Seven? Like Peter's thinking, what's the largest number I could possibly think of to forgive someone? Seven. And Jesus says what? How about 70 times seven? You mean I have to keep forgiving someone if they keep sinning against me? Yes. Why? Because that's exactly what God does for you. That's exactly what Christ did for you. So why would you not want to do that? If you love him, if you worship him, why would you not want to be just like him? And forgive, even when someone sins against you 70 times 7 times. This is a life consumed with the way that Christ thought about life. That's what he wants for us. That's what his spirit is supposed to do in our hearts. I mean, think about, you know, as a teenager, I think about this often. If I could go back to high school and I could actually live like Christ in high school, right? I praise God for the baptisms we've had of teenagers. But I do ask this question, how are you living your life now? Is it the same as the way that you lived before? Hanging out with your friends, avoiding certain people that you don't think are worth hanging out with, joking about other teens, sarcastic, tearing people down, blowing off your parents' counsel and advice? Does your life resemble Christ more than before you were saved? How about showing kindness to those that the world ignores? That's what Christ did. 
How about saying things that build each other up instead of tear people down? That's what Christ does. How about seeking counsel from your parents and honoring them? Christ even did that. Now, I don't want to just pick on teenagers. We're all like this, right? Are we living like Christ? Is our mind actually changing? So we don't think the th our thoughts anymore. We think Christ's thoughts. When we go to work, do we work like all of our coworkers, or do we work in a distinctly Christian way, a Christ-like way? We don't try to get by on doing as little as possible anymore. We actually want to honor God through our work. If someone hurts us or offends us, we don't gossip behind their back like we used to. We go to them. We talk to them. We love them anyway. Even if they don't repent, even if they don't ask for forgiveness, we treat them with kindness anyway. Why? Because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. How about the church? Are, what are our relationships like in the church? Do we forgive each other? Are we compassionate towards each other? Do we welcome each other? Do we live like Christ? Tim said, I think last week in his sermon, you know, if there's no bucket at the front of the church that you drop all your worldly philosophies in, you know, before you come in. And I thought about that and kind of, you know, tweaked the illustration a little bit to be like, well, what if we had like metal detectors, you know, maybe on the, the doors as we left the church, right, or came in. And any time that we were holding on to worldly philosophy or selfish or sinful ways of thinking, it would beep as we went through that, right? So let's say, you know, we approach the metal detector. And of course, you know, when you go to the airport, right, there's things you know, right? Okay, I got to take my belt buckle off. I got the metal on there. I'm going to put that in there. They, they want me to take my shoes off these days. So I take my shoes off. And then I walk through it, and it's what happens. Beep, 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 beep. And I'm like, oh, I forgot. Uh, my keys, I forgot those. Okay, I put my keys there. And then it's like, okay, now I'm going to go through. Beep, 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 beep. Oh, what did I miss? Okay, my, my, yeah, I forgot my wallet, my phone. Okay, I'll put those in there. And it's like you actually find out that you're carrying around a lot more metal than maybe you thought. And I think it's the same way for us with our worldly ways of thinking. There's certain things we know like, okay, yeah, I can't think like that. I'll put that in the bucket and I'll go through. And then we start walking through the, the spirit's metal detector and what happens? Beep, 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 beep. And that's the role of the spirit in our lives to make us aware of every time that we're not thinking like Christ. And it's going to be that we actually find that it's probably way more often than we think. I have a disdainful thought of a brother or sister in Christ. Beep, 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 beep. I find myself holding on to an offense that's three years old. Beep, 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 beep. I'm thinking, how could that person possibly do this to me? Don't they know? Beep, 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 beep. I'm withholding love from somebody that hurt me. Beep, 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 beep. And it pops up in unex unexpected places. I got two different emails this week, and my first thought was like, beep, 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 beep. <laughs> It's like it, ha it happens all the time. It happens to all of us. But what do we do when it goes off? A lot of times we might just say, oh, well, I'm going to do it anyway. But will we allow the Spirit of God to change us so that we stop thinking those ways and we start thinking like Christ? We ask the Spirit, would you awaken me again to all that Jesus did for me? 
so that I might think and live like him instead of thinking and living like myself. And that's, amazingly, that's what the Spirit wants to do in your life. So let's pray and ask him to do that. Father, we are so thankful for your Spirit. We're so thankful that you chose to give us access to you. That we could know your thoughts. That we could know your very depths. We're thankful because we could never have found them out on our own. We couldn't look inside. We couldn't think through things. We couldn't look to the world around us. We never would have come to correct thoughts about who you are and who we are unless you revealed yourself. So thank you. Thank you for the revealing to us the beauty of the gospel, for revealing your son to us, and thank you for the spirit who makes all of this possible. Lord, I pray that you would make us good stewards of the things that you've revealed to us. That as we meditate on your truths and we meditate on what Jesus did for us, that our lives would change and they become more like him. That when people look at us, they wouldn't think, oh, well, that church is just like the world. But they would think those are a group of people that are humble and gentle and loving and unified. That's what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, Paul says in Ephesians 4. So may we imitate our Savior in all the ways that we think and act and feel. And may you get all the glory for it. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your wisdom. Help us to live in light of it. In Christ's name, amen.